The following program may contain explicit language. It's Wednesday, August 5th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I am not here to tell you how to store your ammonium nitrate. I'm not. I don't want to be that guy. I understand. You didn't ask. You might be peoples from another land who didn't want my advice. And I I understand that that is not my role. Yet still, might I suggest, at the risk of overstepping my bounds, that when storing 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate for six and a half years, you do it away from the populated city center and infrastructure hub. Mm, Okay. According to news reports, a Russian ship flying under the Moldovan flag, and really, is the rest of the sentence after that beginning ever good? A Russian ship flying under the Moldovan flag spread candy and cheered all the good little boys and girls is not the way that usually goes. Anyway, the ship was docked in, I think, 2013, made to unload its 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate. There it sat in port. No doubt a local curiosity, but actually a potential powder keg, though gunpowder is actually less dangerous in many regards than ammonium nitrate. In the U.S., we have had ammonium nitrate disasters. This despite the National Fire Protection Association's code for the storage of ammonium nitrate. That's NFPA 490. Companies don't always follow it. 2013, the Adair Grain Company had an explosion, killed 13 people. Maybe you remember it. There are a couple of different things about that accident and that incident as compared to the one in Beirut. One, in Texas, it wasn't 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate. It was less than a tenth of that. And two, it wasn't stored in the port of the country's largest city. It was stored in West Texas, 18 miles north of Waco, which I never understood since Waco is in pretty much the eastern part of Texas. West Texas, it turns out, I found this out today, is the name of the town, and it was named after T.M. West. T.M., terribly muddied, terrifically mystifying. Either way, you can start in El Paso, drive nine and a half hours east, and be in West Texas. Makes no sense to name a small town 18 miles north of Waco, West Texas. But you know what does make sense? Storing your ammonium nitrate there. Way away from people. Still, 13 died. Horrible tragedy. Terrible explosion. But in Beirut, catastrophic explosion, killed over a hundred, maybe hundreds. Here in Brooklyn, we store our ammonium nitrate in bespoke little kiosks. Many of our shopkeepers have a take ammonium nitrate, leave an ammonium nitrate dish. Again, not going to tell you how to do this. It's too late now anyway, but please, please, other countries that might have thousands of tons of ammonium nitrate laying around, maybe you wanna ship it to the outskirts of town. Or ventilate. You could always ventilate. On the show today, the president, who votes by mail, while warning us against voting by mail, is now saying that kids could go back to school, which, of course, his own kid is not doing. Wait, who? Tiffany? I thought she graduated. The president was heard to have said, no, we're talking about the other kid. We will break down this breakdown in good sense on the spiel. But first... Jesse Eisenberg is back to discuss the inspiration and execution of his new Audible show, which is called When You Finish Saving the World. If you missed yesterday's episode, that's fine. What you need to know is that Jesse plays a single mother of four who's trying to work her way through mortuary school, all the while staying one step ahead of the law for a crime she didn't commit. Or did she? I don't know, because that's not what this audio play is about. 
When You Finish Saving the World is a three-part play, a work, an audio drama that shifts character, it shifts time. It's really very good. And I don't just say that as I try to finish my embalming homework while giving the slip to a determined police detective proving to be quite savvy. Jesse Eisenberg up next. Jesse Eisenberg's When You Finish Saving the World is told in three parts. If you heard yesterday's show, you know that he plays a strapping six-foot-tall Scandinavian fishing boat captain who seduces young ladies through his mastery of the zither. Again, that is not true. I keep lying about what this work is about. I kind of want to keep it from you, but I'll tell you enough so that you're oriented. Jesse's character is a young father who is not bonding with his baby son. That's interesting because the real-life Jesse Eisenberg has a son. I've witnessed their interactions. They certainly seemed warm, in fact, snuggly, quite delightful, and you can't fake that unless you're a very successful actor. But I did wonder, had Jesse witnessed or heard about that phenomenon? So I asked him, was this an exercise in imagination where you try to get into a mindset of a parent not bonding with their own child? Yeah, I mean, I actually only heard the phenomenon once and I was so sad for the guy who was experiencing the like the lack of feeling for his child that it, you know, let me interrupt. It sounds just like the military. It's like, wow, this is so foreign to me. I, I need to rush to it. I need to figure it out. Yes, exactly. When somebody, I, I, I was friends with a guy who told me, yeah, he had a daughter and he said, I felt nothing for her. I was shocked that he told me, but kind of even more shocked that he felt nothing because it just seemed to me like this unbelievable phenomenon that you'd immediately feel, you know, this wave of a million different things. And so I always thought, God, it'd be such an interesting character to explore in a play because I was just always writing plays. But I kind of, every time I started writing something that would become uh, you know, a theatrical experience with a baby uh, in it, it just is immediately impossible. You know, when you do something with a baby on stage, it's usually a blanket, ra- a speaker wrapped in a blanket, you know, and then there's some sound designer is making the speaker cry and then you have to hold the baby and it's impossible to act really well. So I was thinking, I was kind of always looking for like a format to tell this, a story of a character who didn't connect to their child. And then when I met with these executives at Audible. And I have to say, it's like actually an amazing company in this way. They said, you know, we're all kind of figuring this thing out together. So if you have any stories that you think could work for this medium, tell us. So um, I, I pitched them this story about a guy who doesn't connect with his child. And they, you know, I'm sure assumed that it was about me and that I should get help. And then um, <laughs> showed them pictures of me hugging my son. And then they let me do it as a piece of fiction. <laughs> it's amazing what you could do with Photoshop. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Was, yeah. But then again, your wife, just like the wife in this, does, well, her mom ran this, uh, this women's shelter in Indiana. And your wife, just like the wife in the, uh, in the um, show, uh, you know, the Audible original, uh, has that connection. There was, I think at the end, yes, it was the end of your character's episode. There's a payon to how lovely and great and giving it is to be, to do this work. And I'm wondering if either your wife or your mother-in-law has heard that and interpret it as, you know, you just giving them a great compliment to the millions of people who might hear this. Yeah, my view of myself is that um, I'm I'm a hedonist and incredibly fortunate, having put forth very little effort and received so much from the world. And my assessment of my wife is that, you know, she wakes up every morning and tries to figure out, like, who she can help and how she can not get credit for it. And so everything I write has been kind of, like, really colored by this, 
you know, kind of uh, dynamic that I'm obsessed with because of my hedonistic narcissism, um, which is the thing that begets the theory in the first place. So like everything I write is like usually like some kind of like artist doing something that has no social value that they're incredibly uh, confident about. And then somebody who's doing something that has immense social value and gets no credit for it and doesn't and, and doesn't lament the fact that they get no credit. And of course, they're happier and the artist is miserable. And so this is kind of like my current worldview, which I hope matures into something a little more healthy. And my uh, and so that's the dynamic in the, you know, uh, in the series. Okay, but what you just said, how you idealize your wife, um, and she she probably deserves it. But that is what's going on with all of your characters in a different way. They each have an attachment to another character, and they have they've really fallen in love with the dream version of that character to one extent or another. Yes, that's right. And by extension, you know, I will say, yeah, that kind of happens to me. Then I, you know, idealize people like my wife and people like, you know, my best friend is a teacher for kids who are formerly incarcerated. And, you know, I idealize these people to the point where I, you know, I, I lionize them. And then like, I would say just by contrast, like denigrate my own work. And then when I'm writing and I'm thinking about things a little more kind of calmly, I'm able to kind of yeah assess that they have flaws that are maybe driven by selfish things and that I have some value and are maybe and I'm maybe driven by some, uh, you know, socially benevolent things as well. And that the manifestations of our work and our interests are much more complicated than I always feel. Yeah. Well, I think you maybe give yourself a break if the Nathan character is a little bit like you, because at one point the Nathan character makes a joke, not a terribly off-color joke, but certainly not a sensitive joke about Haiti. And then we hear that resonance in the next episode when his son makes a somewhat um, enlightened comment or about the Marshall Islands, which we've come to learn is now underwater, which, by the way, is a quite scientifically sound prediction. But I also do think that you're not actually saying that the guy who made the bad joke is a bad guy. In fact, maybe even doesn't need to be redeemed so much for making the joke. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he, he is like, I would say, a kind of average person who, uh, who falls in love with a better than average person. And so all the kind of average things he's doing, like making a sly comment about Haiti at a party uh, and kind of making light of an earthquake there is you know, shattered by this woman who spends her life, you know, who's built wells there and, and, and spends her life kind of, you know, she's, she's what, you know, we're referring to now as people who are kind of like standing up, not standing by. And she's done that her whole life. And so, you know, when she hears this comment at a party, you know, at a, you know about Haiti, you know, she stands up and yells at him. And the guy is kind of so, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of like, you know, um, emotionally stunted, but, you know, it's a intellectually kind of, um, uh, rigorous. He spends the night reading about Haiti and writes her a long email and donates money and then ends up boxing up things for Haiti, not because he has this kind of well of emotion, but just because he realizes that he made a logical mistake. Yeah. Now, you talked about imagining a character who doesn't bond with his son because you do bond with your son, and so it's interesting to imagine. But then when you set that the son, when you set his life uh, as a 15-year-old in... 2032, then you have to do some imagining of your own. And there's a little bit of world building. There are universal credits given out. Of course, there are only driverless cars, except for nostalgia purposes. But of course, there's also, it's a teenager. There's lots of slang. Things are chalk or brim or whatever. How much logic, tell me about the process of inventing the slang words. And if you have a backstory as to why each of those slang words became the words they became in 2032. 
Yes, it was more like a process of elimination than a um, than a creative process. I would come up with a word. I would look on UrbanDictionary.com, and they would inevitably uh, be defined as some horrific sex act that I'd never heard of and can never unlearn. And so. I don't know what the percentages of um, like words that mean some like uh, you know impossible to enact sex act on Urban Dictionary, but I managed ninety percent of their definitions. And so um, I would think of a word, go to Urban Dictionary, be discouraged, and then think of another word. And so the words that I came up with, I had like a glossary of like I don't know thirty words that and and what they meant, and so I would kind of sprinkle them throughout. You know, luckily, I was creating a 15-year-old boy who's a bit pretentious and who thinks of himself as like a, you know, cutting-edge artist. And so I thought, well, this is the kind of guy who would use a word even before it's fully embraced as like, you know, as part of the lexicon. Um, and so, um, uh, yes, yeah, so I was kind of just thinking of words that have, I don't know, you know, what I don't know how slang develops, but I guess, you know, they, 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 you know, they have some correlation to a, a word in, in, you know, regular use, and then it's taken to a different, you know, place. And, uh, and it has the feeling uh, uh, rather than, you know, some kind of like logical or, you know, um, linguistic basis. And uh, I don't know, it was fun, you know, it was just kind of fun to do and it kind of colors it in a different way and reminds you that you're in the future. Did you in your own life find yourself calling things brim or chalky? Yeah, the truth is, once you start coming up with uh, with slang in the future, it just kind of highlights how arbitrary and silly the slang is that we have now. I mean, in fact, you had somebody on your show talk about phatics, P-H-A-T-I-C-S. You know, it's the, it's the idea that, you know, that there are these words that are meaningless, like, uh, you know, uh, how are you doing? Cool. You know, these things that don't have any meaning, logical meaning, but are just used to kind of like, you know, uh, you know, grease the social um, dynamics between people. And um, it's all meaningless and arbitrary anyway. So, you know, putting things in the future makes it sound funny because it's not used, but now, but it's, it's no less logical than the current slang we're employing now. Yeah, I think that I um, and it reminded me of the futuristic part, reminded me a little bit of uh, some George Saunders writing or Kurt Vonnegut speaking of, you know, a, an Indiana, an Indiana writer. Um, but I also had this notion that for the most part, anytime anyone makes the conscious decision to set something in the future, it's necessarily because they want to say something about the future. Just like in a movie, like I got to tell you, anytime it, it rains, it's on purpose and it's a choice and it's not just because it happened to rain that day. Usually I find that in not so great movies, it rains on sad days. Funerals in movies, 80% rainy days. I don't know how that works. That's right. And it's but, more expensive. So you know that, yeah. Yeah, it's more you expensive. You have to really put the effort. Yeah. <laughs> but here... This is a really rare work of, I guess, sci-fi or futuristic writing where just because of the structure of it, you were forced to write it in the future and you didn't shy away from making some predictions, but that wasn't the purpose. In fact, that wasn't really at all the motivation. So it's kind of a different kind of sci-fi writing. Not that there is no sci-fi that's basically driven by the emotion of a character Ad Astra, for instance, this movie I saw was mainly about trying to figure out the relationship between a father and son. But I've never, I don't know that I've read so much sci-fi where the sci-fi was incidental and forced upon the author as just a necessity because of how he's constructed the rest of the stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really good assessment and totally true. Um, the only like kind of consideration I was, the only kind of like commentary I wanted to make on the future was to create a kid who's like uh, a kind of 
unapologetic capitalist at a time where jobs are increasingly scarce. This was probably because Andrew Yang was spiking in the polls when I uh, was writing that section and um, otherwise has no, you know, uh, basis in my world philosophy. But um, and also I come from a family of animal rights activists and uh, they're all convinced that no one will be eating meat in a decade, um, that it'll, it'll be lab grown meat. I, I think they're probably right in terms of that happening, but probably wrong in terms of how quickly it can happen. And um, so in that story, the kid goes to this thing called a candle party, which is a party where they don't allow tech and it's like only lit by candles. And it's like a party that's to celebrate, you know, basically a backlash to uh, technology. And um, they eat a real chicken. And it's like a novelty for this kid who hasn't eaten chicken, you know, real chicken since he was a kid. Right, right. And he's like, I think it's called the breast. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> okay, so my last question is, I think it took me, after listening to all of them, and then four minutes before this interview, for me to get why the title is When, when You're Finished Saving the World. When did the title come to you? The title came to me after I finished it. It was always the kind of working title was the Ziegfeld Files, because Ziggy's name was really, uh, Ziggy, who's the boy in, in the show, uh, in the, I don't even know what to call it. We need a new name for the format. That sounds cool. Like Blu-ray. Can we take Blu-ray, since that's no longer a thing? Um, yeah, so... Uh, the title came to me um, yeah, after I finished writing it. I was uh, at, a, at a talk that my friend was giving. He's an activist against mass incarceration. And um, he said something about uh, the mother of his child saying, you know, when you finish saving the world, remember you have a son. Because he was out kind of always giving speeches about mass incarceration and he's done so much good work. But, uh, you know, sometimes it maybe came at the expense of visiting his, you know, his kid back in Brooklyn. And I thought uh, it was such a, I don't know, such a potent phrase. And it was both condemnatory, but at the same time implies that the person's doing amazing work. And so you kind of almost feel guilty for being so snide to a person who's doing such great work. And I think it speaks to like what we owe our family when we're doing things that are really important, when we're an activist for the right causes and we're on the right side of justice, you know, what do we owe our personal life? What do we owe to our personal life? What do we owe, you know, the people who are left at home while we're doing something great? Um, yeah, I think about that all the time. And that's what this is about, because it's about, it's about these characters trying to figure out how to kind of do important work in the world. But on the other hand, they kind of struggle to feel comfortable in a family. Jesse Eisenberg's new work is an Audible original, which means... You know, it's out there. You got to do a little searching on the app, maybe. I hope they push it at the public hard because it's really just excellent. It's a story of a family in three parts at three different times when you finish saving the world. Thanks so much, Jesse. Mike, thank you so much. And now the spiel. Sometimes President Trump, Donald J. Trump, says a thing, and that thing is dead solid, nailed down, six ways from Sunday, perfecto. For example, Russia used to be a thing called the Soviet Union. Absolutely, Mr. President. He's all over that. No Pinocchios. In fact, negative Pinocchios. If you started off with a Pinocchio, we're taking Pinocchio away. We'll leave you with a real boy. That is how true that statement was. But at other times, the president fibs. Today was such a day, and as luck would have it, 
Fox News was such a forum. My view is the school should open. This thing's going away. It will go away like things go away. And my view is that school should be open. If you look at children, children are almost, and I would almost say definitely, but almost immune from this disease. So few, they've got stronger, hard to believe. I don't know how you feel about it. I don't feel good about it because the salient point isn't if it kills kids, and occasionally it does. It generally does spare children, but they can transmit the virus. They can, and they do. So the question isn't, why does the president say what he says? He says what he says because he just wants it to be true. The question is, is there any strategy to this? Not psychological, but electoral. What's his play? What's his angle? What's his tactic for laying out a plan based on a lie, that lie being that children don't get or spread COVID-19. Who does that help? If an outbreak happens, who's going to benefit? How does that help his re-election chances? Why is he saying that? I told you, basically, he says things because he wants them to be true. But to an extent, there is a strategy. It's not the kind of strategy where he got together with advisors and they said, emphasize this point that you think the kids are safe. It's more like a strategy that represents the tingling of his reptilian brain. And it leads him to certain areas. This is true, that there is a cohort in this country that believes Trump no matter what Trump says. So if Trump thrills and delights that cohort, Trump thinks all will be fine. Part of thrilling the cohort is attacking liberals, which Trump truly, really, and genuinely has a talent for. Liberals, for instance, don't like the president of the United States mismanaging the greatest health crisis in 100 years. They do not like it. Now, conservatives, if you ask them, I don't know, five years ago, would you like that? They'd say no. But what they see right before them is just how much liberals don't like it. And they say, well, in that case, it's got to be good. But if you take a step back and examine the strategy of only thrilling your base, you do see some flaws. First of all, how solid's the base to begin with? How big's the base? Donald Trump got fewer votes than his opponent in 2016. I would think that every other politician in history who got fewer votes than his opponent did last time would say at least, let's try to get more. Maybe... Maybe the bad ones would say, let's try to get just as many, but most would say, let's try to get more. Not Trump. Since he won with almost 3 million fewer votes than Hillary Clinton, perhaps he figures that he'll be in really, really good shape if he gets 4 or 5 million fewer in 2020. Maybe he thinks that counts as running up the score. It's not, by the way. Once you get past, I don't know, 4 million, 5 million deficit in the national vote, it's very hard, if not impossible, to win the electoral college, no matter how skewed the electoral college is. Trump has some bigger concerns, even if he is still intent on running a strategy of aggressively repelling everyone who didn't vote for him already. But of course, thrilling those who did. So problem one for Trump. His 2016 voters are more likely to be dead in 2020 than Democratic voters are. It's just by age. Two, Americans are less likely to be Republican. 
there's been a small but perceptible drop in Republican registered voters and also a small but perceptible drop in the number of self-identified Republicans to pollsters. That's maybe in the 2% range. So whenever Trump talks about or thinks about how well he does with Republicans, if there are fewer Republicans, he's not doing as well. And again, there's no wiggle room. He got fewer votes the first time. Brings us up to the third problem facing Trump. That self-identified independents, when asked, do you lean Republican or lean Democrat, used to break pretty much 50-50. But now, for the first time in more than a decade, over half lean Democrat. That's not good for Trump. And four, Trump has tweeted over and over again that he has a 93 or 94% approval rating among Republicans. The number did, in fact, hit 94 in a Gallup poll early in 2020. Although it seems like he was making up that number in 2019. No poll showed him at 93 or 94, but it came true. I guess that's the power of positive thinking. In June, the number slipped to 85%, however, among Republicans. It's since come up a little bit. It's still strong, but it's not the 93, 94 that he was banking on. So fewer Republicans, slightly less fervor among Republicans for Trump, and a disadvantage among independents, And starting from a basis of unpopularity in comparative and absolute terms, Trump's strategy of only exciting the people who elected him in the first place does not seem to have much to recommend it. It may, in fact, be a poor strategy. It may, in fact, be a strategy that was never wise, that never had a chance of working, that will be remembered along with all the crazy nonsense and the dishonesty and the graft and the lies, as a non-starter, doomed from the get-go. Let's be honest, when we say it will be remembered, it will be really hard to remember any nuances of Trump's tactically unwise electoral strategy when future generations are trying to contemplate his preposterously disastrous governance. But everything I'm saying is true. We could find out, wow, this game he was playing all along was a failing game, doomed to fail, had no chance. Of course, history, as Kierkegaard said, can only be understood backwards, but must be lived forward. So Trump is forwarding along, once more, misinformation that is not only unhelpful to Americans and students and parents and teachers and potential corona patients, but also seemingly not helpful to himself. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader and Margaret Kelly are just producers. Each voice, a character in a two-part audio original series told from the perspective of an out-of-work classical composer who has written the world's first palindromic opera. And the second part is about a lack of slack resop mock who tries to eat a repo. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of The Gist. She's assembling a two-hour, 15-minute slideshow to be consumed as the visual element alongside that Jesse Eisenberg audio play, The Gist. I have written a three-part audio play that stars Finn Wolfhard as Wolf Finbeak, a scientist attempting to mate a bird with a wild dog. The Flamingo Dingo, available from Audible, but only barely. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.